0: If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland or you can phone 092713377 Buddhist Youth Association, Respectful, Beneficial, Empowering. Hello and welcome to the program. Listen to the extraordinary Master Thich Nhat Hanh on Being Buddha. He says, We tend to compare ourselves with others and to wonder if we have enough to offer in a relationship. Many of us feel unworthy. We're thirsty for truth, goodness, compassion, spiritual beauty, and we're sure these things don't exist within us, so we go looking outside. Sometimes we think we've found the ideal partner who embodies all that is good, beautiful, and true. That person may be a romantic partner. A friend or a spiritual teacher. We see all the good in that person and we fall in love. After a time, we usually discover that we've had the wrong perception of that person and we become disappointed. Beauty and goodness are always there in each of us. That's the basic teaching of the Buddha. A true teacher, a true spiritual partner, is one who encourages you to look deeply in yourself for the beauty and love you are seeking. The true teacher is someone who helps you discover the teacher in yourself. According to the Buddha, the birth of a human being is not a beginning, but a continuation. And when we are born, all the different kinds of seeds, seeds of goodness, of cruelty, of awakening, are already within us. Whether the goodness or cruelty in us is revealed depends on what seeds we cultivate, our actions and our way of life. At the moment of his awakening at the foot of the Bodhi tree, the Buddha declared, How strange! All beings possess the capacity to be awakened, to understand, to love, to be free. Yet they allow themselves to be carried away on the ocean of suffering. He saw that day and night we are seeking what is already there within us. We can call it Buddha nature, awakened nature, the true freedom that is the foundation for all peace and happiness. The capacity to be enlightened isn't something that someone else can offer you. A teacher can only help you to remove the non-enlightened elements in you so that enlightenment can be revealed. If you have confidence that beauty, goodness and the true teacher are in you and if you take refuge in them, you will practice in a way that reveals these qualities more clearly each day. He then goes on, When you begin to practice Buddhism, You begin as a part-time Buddha and slowly you become a full-time Buddha. Sometimes you fall back and become a part-time Buddha again but with steady practice you become a full-time Buddha again. Buddhahood is within reach because like the Buddha you're a human being. You can become a Buddha whenever you like. The Buddha is available in the here and now anytime, anywhere. When you're a part-time Buddha your romantic relationships may may go well some of the time. When you're a full time Buddha, you can find a way to be present and happy in your relationship full time, no matter what difficulties arise. Becoming a Buddha is not so difficult. A Buddha is someone who is enlightened, capable of loving and forgiving. You know that at times you're like that, so enjoy being a Buddha. When you sit, allow the Buddha in you to sit. When you walk, allow the Buddha in you to walk. Enjoy your practice. If you don't become a Buddha, who will? Every single person contains the seeds of goodness, kindness and enlightenment. We all have the seeds of Buddha nature. To give the Buddha in you a chance to manifest both in yourself and your loved ones, you have to water those seeds. When we act as if people have these seeds inside them, it gives us and them the strength and energy to help these seeds grow and flower. If we act as if we don't believe in our inherent goodness, we blame others for our suffering and we lose our happiness. That's Thich Nhat Hanh. People sometimes ask me what the meaning of life is and I think in future when people ask, maybe I should just read them this beautiful passage by Thich Nhat Hanh. But maybe they still won't understand and want to find something startling, amazing, like a miracle of revelation, not understanding that this is a miracle of revelation. You can become a Buddha whenever you like. The Buddha is available in the here and now, anytime, anywhere. When you're a part-time Buddha, your romantic relationships may go well some of the time. When you're a full-time Buddha, you can find a way to be present and happy in your relationship full-time, no matter what difficulties arise. Isn't that a revelation? At least to me it is. This whole quote is from an introduction to a book called Love's Garden, a guide a guide to mindful relationships. So that's why he particularly mentions a romantic relationship. But we can take the word romantic out, and the quote will make even greater sense. When you're a part-time Buddha, your relationships may go well some of the time. When you're a full-time Buddha, you can find a way to be present and happy in your relationships full-time, no matter what difficulties arise. And I don't think Thich Nhat Hanh would mind the omission at all, for he says at the end of the passage, Our goal in practicing mindfulness and the deepest gift it can bring us is the wisdom of non-discrimination. We are not noble by birth. We are noble only by virtue of the way we think, speak and act. The person who practices true love has the wisdom of non-discrimination and it informs all his actions. He doesn't discriminate between himself and his partner or between his partner and all people. This person's heart has grown large and his love knows no obstacles. Over the last two programs we've been discussing the three principal as- aspects of the path, a text by Lama Tsongkhapa, the founder of the Gulukpa tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. The three principal aspects are renunciation, bodhicitta and wisdom. And last time we defined bodhicitta and I read excerpts by two Tibetan Buddhist masters, Lama Yeshe and Geshe Sonam Rinchen, on the importance and benefits of bodhicitta. Remember that bodhicitta is the mind to attain enlightenment for the greatest benefit of all living beings. It has these two aspects. To best benefit in whatever way possible all living beings, and to do that, attaining enlightenment, the ultimate and most powerful in evolution. Now don't you think that Thich Nhat Hanh's words are pointing to Bodhicitta? The person who practices true love has the wisdom of non-discrimination and it informs all his actions. He doesn't discriminate between himself and his partner or between his partner and all people. This person's heart has grown large and his love knows no obstacles. Now we enter the last program with comments on how effective bodhicitta is in counteracting the self-grasping and self-cherishing that is the foundation of our unhappiness. Normally the center of our universe is ourselves. Whatever we experience, we refer directly to the independently appearing I or self that appears to stand at the center of our life. We then develop liking or disliking, according to whether the experience pleases that I or not, with the result that we develop attachment for some of our experiences and revulsion for others. Of course, those that don't seem to affect us much, we more or less ignore. Thus is born attachment, aversion and ignorance. However, the primary tenet of all the Buddha's teachings is that the I that seems so central is in fact non-existent no matter how solidly it appears to us. If we search and try to find that I, even with a very concentrated mind, we cannot. We keep coming back to the conclusion that it's just a trick of the mind. In ordinary life, we have no intention of searching for the I. Unanalytically, we just accept it's there and pay a due homage. And the more self-absorbed we become, the more real it appears. It becomes dominant in all our thinking and colors all our experiences with its biases. That means we're in constant turmoil, trying to get and hang on to the things that please this eye, and push away anything that appears unappetizing to it. But even if we get what it wants, it is never completely satisfied. Insatiable, it is always ready to, to demand more. So we never find peace. A major benefit of bodhicitta is that instead of the mind turning inwards all the time and referencing every experience to the I, it makes others its focus, subordinating me and mine to them and theirs. When others become more important, the insatiable I necessarily loses a lot of its clout and so it has less chance to cause havoc. Of course, in the beginning it's very much a balancing act because we can't just renounce the I that has been our slave driver for for so long. Oh, you don't really exist, so I'm not going to take any notice of you anymore. That won't work. So we have to train over a long period of time to turn our selfish attitudes into altruistic attitudes and thus gradually diminish the power of the I over our thinking. Then it will eventually become much easier to meditate correctly on the nature of reality the lack of existence of the independent inherently existing I or self. In fact, in the Tibetan tradition we are advised not to meditate on the nature of reality until we have gained a thorough knowledge of what it means through study and contemplation. Tibetan Buddhist teachers say that bodhicitta is the most important thing in the Buddhist teachings, even more important than wisdom. Continuing on from our Lama Yeshi quote last week, here is what he has to say about it. With Bodhicitta, you become so precious, like gold, like diamonds, you become the most perfect object in the world, beyond compare with any material things. From the Western materialistic point of view, we'd think it was great if a rich person said, I want to make charity, I'm going to offer a hundred dollars to everybody in the entire world. Even if that person gave with great sincerity. His or her merit would be nothing compared with just the thought, I wish to actualize bodhicitta for the sake of sentient beings and I'll practice the six perfections as much as I can. That's why I always say actualization of bodhicitta is the most perfect path you can take. You can prove scientifically that bodhicitta is the best practice to do, he claims. Our self-cherishing thought is the root of all human problems. Makes our life difficult and miserable. The solution to self cherishing, its antidote, is the mind that is, is its complete opposite, bodhicitta. The self cherishing mind is worried about only me, me, the self existent I. Bodhicitta substitutes others for self. It creates a space in your mind. Then, even if your dearest friend forgets to give you a Christmas present, you don't mind. Ah, well. This year she didn't give me my chocolate. It doesn't matter. Anyway, your human relationships are not for chocolate, not for sensory pleasures. Something much deeper can come from our being together, working together. If you want to be really, really happy, it isn't enough just to space out in meditation. Many people who have spent years alone in meditation have finished up the worst for it. Coming back into society, they've freaked out. They haven't been able to take contact with other people again because the peaceful environment they created was an artificial condition, still a relative phenomenon without solidity. With bodhicitta, no matter where you go, you will never freak out. The more you are involved with people, the more pleasure you get. People become the resource of your pleasure. You're living for people. Even though some still try to take advantage of you, you understand. Well, in the past, I took advantage of them many times too. So it doesn't bother you. This bodhicitta is the most perfect way to practice Dharma, especially in our 20th century Western society. It's very, very worthwhile. With the foundation of bodhicitta, you will definitely grow. And just to round off this initial discussion on bodhicitta, here's a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh called Recommendation. Promise me, promise me this day, Promise me now, while the sun is overhead, exactly at the zenith, promise me. Even as they strike you down with a mountain of hatred and violence, even as they step on you and crush you like a worm, even as they dismember and disembowel you, remember, brother, remember, man is not your enemy. The only thing worthy of you is compassion. Invincible, limitless, unconditional, Hatred will never let you face the beast in man. One day, when you face this beast alone, with your courage intact, your eyes kind, untroubled, even as no one sees them, out of your smile will bloom a flower. And those who love you will behold you across ten thousands of worlds of birth and dying. Alone again, I will go on with bent head, knowing that love has become eternal. On the long, rough road, the sun and the moon will continue to shine the third of the three principal aspects of the path is wisdom of course there are many kinds of wisdom some are mundane and some are not for instance knowing how a car works and being able to fix all the problems that come with cars we might call the wisdom of automobiles in buddhism we talk about the realization of the four noble truths or the way karma works as types of wisdom But the wisdom referred to as the third principal aspect of the path is specifically the wisdom that understands and realizes the nature of reality. This is what really cuts the root of all our sorrow and liberates us. Even though so much is made of bodhicitta in the teachings, it becomes powerless without the wisdom of shunyata or emptiness. As Lama Yeshe says, Having renunciation and loving-kindness bodhicitta alone is not enough to cut the root of the ego or the root of the dualistic mind. By meditating on and practicing loving-kindness bodhicitta you can eliminate gross attachment and feelings of craving. But the root of craving, desire and attachment are ego and the dualistic mind. Therefore, without understanding shunyata or non-duality it's not possible to cut the root of human problems. It's like this example. If you have some boiling water And put cold water or ice into it, the boiling water calms down, but you haven't totally extinguished the water's potential to boil. So now let's talk a little about what shunyata or emptiness is. The word emptiness implies that something is empty of or is completely lacking of something else. When we have no water to boil in the kettle, we say that the kettle is empty. In this sense it is completely lacking water although it may be full of air, for instance. When we talk about the emptiness that describes the nature of reality, we refer to a lack of independent, inherent nature or essence. Now, if you take a look at your thumb, for instance, you'll not be able to find a real essence of thumb, a thumb that exists independently of the skin, bone, nail, blood, and so on. Investigate and you can only possibly find all those parts that have come together in a specific way due to certain causes and conditions. If all those parts had come together to form a blob rather than an elongated thing with a nail and knuckles, we wouldn't even label it a thumb. The thumb, of course, exists conventionally. We all know what a thumb looks like and how to differentiate it from a teapot. But ultimately, it has no thumb-exclusive existence or essence. It is only a collection of causes, conditions and parts manifesting in a certain form that mind labels thumb. It is empty of having any other kind of existence, particularly an independent inherent existence as a thumb. The skin, the bone, nail, blood and so on all exist in that way too. None has any independent inherent existence. They are all collections of causes and conditions and parts that the mind labels. In this way, everything exists as a coming together and falling apart of other things, and thus everything is connected to everything else. This is what Thich Han Hanh calls interbeing. The problem is that our mind naturally grasps at an independent inherent existence. When you look at the thumb without analyzing, you don't see all the history that has gone into making up the thumb From the big bang up to now you don't see the flesh and bone the blood and the nails and so on you just see a thumb as if it had a real thumb-like existence not relying on anything else this is the mistake that leads to the afflictive emotions karma and the rest of the catastrophe for instance lama yeshe says that in our relationships we often start off with a motive of altruistic loving kindness but as time goes by Negative minds arise and corrupt our motivation so our love becomes what he calls black or dark love. It begins at first as white love but then transforms into black magic love, he says. I want you to understand that this is due to our lack of wisdom. You're not having the penetrative wisdom to go beyond your relative projection. That lack is also the reason Buddhism does not endorse fanatical or emotional love. Many Westerners project Buddhism has no love, Lama Yeshe says. Actually, love has nothing to do with emotional expression. The emotional expression of love is so gross, so gross, not refined. Buddhism has tremendous concern for or understanding of the needs of both the object and the subject. And in this way, loving kindness becomes an antidote to the selfish attitude. He notes that Western religions also place a lot of emphasis on love and compassion, but not on wisdom. But because wisdom is the only way to become liberated, we have to attain it. To further explain what he means, he uses an example of a Christian monk he and his holiness, the Dalai Lama, spoke to during a visit to Spain. This monk wanted to spend time in isolation. Now, if this is the same monk His Holiness has spoken about in his teachings before, he actually had already spent a lot of time in retreat. His Holiness asked him how he would react when happiness or unhappiness arose. Lama Yeshe says, The monk said something like, Happy is not necessarily happy. Bad is not necessarily bad. Good is not necessarily good. I was astonished. I was very happy, said Lama Yeshe. In the world... Bad is not too bad. Good is not too good. To my small understanding, that was wisdom. We should all learn from that. Ask yourself whether you can do this or not. Can you experience things the way this monk did or not? For me, this monk's experience was great. I don't care whether he was enlightened or not. All I care is that he had this fantastic experience. It was helpful for his life. I'm sure he was blissful. Anyway, all worldly pleasures and bad experiences are so transitory. Knowing their transitory nature, their relative nature, their conventional nature makes you free. The person who has some understanding of shunyata will have exactly the same experiences as that priest had. The person sees that good and bad are relative. They exist for only the conditioned mind and are absolute are not absolute qualities. The characteristic of ego is to project such fantasy notions onto yourself and others. This is the main root of problems. You then react emotionally and hold as concrete your pleasure and pain. He then proposes a simple way to examine how the ego mind interprets itself and how the self-image is just a projection of our ego. Let's try it. Without thinking of past or future, ask yourself, how does my mind imagine myself? Now this is not searching for an absolute existence, just your conventional way of thinking about yourself. Can you see how that conventional view of yourself is just a mental projection? Lama Yeshe says that understanding the conventional mind and the way it projects a self-image is the key to realizing emptiness. This is how to break down the gross concepts of ego and eliminate the self-pitying image we have of ourselves. If we can do that, we go beyond fear and other such emotions that are based on that self-pitying image. We can see how the self-pitying image of yesterday carries on into today. I'm a very bad person today because I was angry yesterday. I was angry last year. This is carrying the self-pitying image from the past into the future. Lama Yeshi points out that you are not angry today, that there is no need to define yourself by what happened in the past. If that logic were correct, he says, then Shakyamuni Buddha would also be bad because when he was on earth, he had a hundred wives but was still unsatisfied. Our ego holds a permanent concept of our ordinary self all the time. This year, last year, the year before. I'm a bad person. Me, 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 me. From a Buddhist point of view, that's wrong. If you hold that kind of concept throughout your lifetime, you become a bad person because you interpret yourself as a bad person. Therefore, your ego's interpretation is unreasonable. It has nothing whatsoever to do with reality. And because your ego holds onto such a self-existent I, attachment begins. Now remember what I said earlier in the program about grasping at the independently appearing self or I and from there attachment, aversion and indifference follow. This is what Lama is pointing out to here. Again he uses a meeting between his holiness and Christian monastics as an example. His holiness evidently asked someone in the group of twenty or so Christian monks what is your interpretation of emptiness? To which the one monk replied, From a Christian point of view, non-attachment is shunyata. Lama Yeshe was very impressed. He says, For me, someone having an experience of non-attachment is super. Don't you think it's super? Attachment is a symptom of this sick world. This world is sick because of attachment. Do you understand? The Middle East is sick because of attachment. Oil-producing countries are sick because of attachment. Am I communicating with you or not? And that Christian monk experienced non-attachment. What do you think of that? From the Buddhist point of view, it is very difficult for a person to experience non-attachment. It's very difficult. For that reason, for me, it's extremely good if somebody, even somebody from another religion, experiences it. And that too is a reason for having the confidence to respect other religions. In a practical demonstration, he shows how easy it is to remove and reattach a piece of electrical tape. But he says our attachment for things that are good is not like that. It's much stronger, as strong as iron. We have to le- learn to let go and be flexible. He goes on to say, Philosophically, of course, you can research Shunyata very deeply. You can analyze the notion of the self-existent I a thousand ways. But here I'm talking about what you can do practically every day, right now, in a simple way. Don't think about Buddhist terminology. Don't think about what the books say or anything like that. Just ask yourself simply, how at this moment do I interpret myself? That's all. Each time you ask yourself that question, you get a different answer, I tell you. Because sometimes you're emanating as a chicken, sometimes as a pig, sometimes as a monkey. Then you can laugh at yourself, what I'm thinking is incredible, I'm a pig. But you shouldn't worry when you see yourself as a pig, don't worry, just laugh. The way you check, the way you question yourself should just make you laugh, In that way you get closer to Shinyata. Because you know something, through your own experience you know that your own projection of yourself is a fantasy, and to some extent you experience selflessness you no longer trust your own ego and your concepts become less concrete. And we'll have to leave it at that for today, for time is up. Thank you for joining the program and I hope you've got something beneficial out of it. Please dedicate any positive potential we've accumulated to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all living beings. Thanks so much and goodbye.